Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 78. Well, we have an excellent guest for you today, Adam Angievsky. Now, that name is spelled completely different than it just sounded, but don't worry, we have the correct spelling at, in the title of this episode, as well as in the show notes, as well as at our website, agentsofinnovation.org. And of course, you can follow us as well on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And those can all be linked from the website, agentsofinnovation.org. You can find them there. Also, we thank you for joining us on one of the many platforms that this podcast is featured on, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you may be listening. Thank you for joining us and thank you for subscribing. If this is your first time listening, we have 77 other episodes before this, and we release about two new episodes per month. So there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists to hear from and learn from. And we hope that you will subscribe. Right now, it's for free. Just pull out your phone, pull out the podcast app you're listening on, and just hit the subscribe button. And if you get a chance, at the end of this We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, rate the podcast. The more ratings we have, the more reviews we have, the higher we climb in the algorithms of the interwebs and people will uh, be able to learn more about the story of Adam Angievsky and other um, episode guests that we've had. Adam, if you're not familiar with him, is from Illinois, the land of Lincoln, I mentioned his hard-to-pronounce and hard-to-spell last name, Adam Angievsky. Well, that's a Polish last name, and he has family that came to this country from Poland in the early 1900s, and also some ancestors that came from New Amsterdam in the middle of the 1800s, and they settled in Illinois, the land of Lincoln, where Adam still maintains residence today, where he was born and raised. He actually is the co-founder of Homepages Directories, a $20 million publishing company where he was a part of that company from 97 to 2007, helped start the company with his brother. His brother, one of his brothers still runs it today and uh, they have many other staff and um, uh, they've they've done great success. So we're going to hear about how he got involved in that, but he was first uh, basically on the farm in uh, rural Illinois and learned some of his work ethic out uh, on the farm for many years as a, as a boy and, a, and, a, and, and as a young man. And so we're going to hear about how he made that transition to starting this publishing company. And then later in 2010, he ran for the highest office in the land of Illinois, in the land of Lincoln, governor of Illinois. He didn't quite win, but he had a great time running and proclaiming the message of freedom and opportunity and hope and government transparency. From that time, he decided to open the books, that it was time to open the books in Illinois and across the country. So he founded OpenTheBooks.com, the world's largest private database of government spending. It's been cited across so many media spectrums, uh, and, and the list would be too long to name, but you can check out everything on the website at agentsofinnovation.org. 
and where Adam has been found. Also, at the end of this episode, we're going to hear another song from Matt Brown. Matt was the guest on episode 57 of the Agents of Innovation podcast. He hails from basically uh, Oregon and, and Washington State, uh, and but he has been living in Nashville for a while now. I actually caught up with Matt in uh, June in Nashville, so it was great to, to see him and hear some of his future plans. But uh, on this episode, we're going to hear one of his newer songs called Walk Into the Light. I thought, what a great named song for a podcast interview with a man that's going to talk to us about opening the books and providing more transparency in government. And so Matt Brown's song, Walk Into the Light, it's going to give us a, a thought about walking and, and shedding a light on government transparency, bringing information to more people through the power of technology. Uh, what an innovative thing Adam N. Jeffsky is doing for us, for our country, for our world. And I thought, you know, we're just weeks after our July 4th Independence Day holiday. Uh, so as we look at how to be more innovative in our country, in public policy, in government, and uh, the democratic process, uh, why not have Adam Njevsky on to talk to us a little bit about that and about his other entrepreneurial experiences. So sit back, buckle up, and get ready to walk into the light of government transparency with Adam Njevsky. We're about to open the books. All right. Well, I want to welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast my guest today, Adam Njevsky. That's it's that's actually pronounced completely different than it looks, but uh, we'll we'll have your your name written out in the show notes, uh, Adam. I want to thank you for being here. You're coming to us, I think, from Illinois, the Super Bowl of corruption, uh, Francisco. <laughs> it doesn't get any worse than Illinois. I'm I'm really looking forward to telling all the stories in the business world and public policy and politics. Uh, being you know, my family on my mother's side goes back to 1844 in Illinois. When we were a land grant family, farmers, we dug up the land. Eight generations later, we still own the land in Illinois. We're not fleeing Illinois. We're staying and we're fighting. And it's taught us a lot on how to win on a national basis in public policy and politics and in business. Where did uh, you said that was your great grandparents? So back in uh, eight. So, you know, I mean, my, my mother's family goes back to Peter Stuyvesant. So he's about an eight or a nine generation grandfather removed from me. And I guess the Newberry Library in Chicago, my grandparents traced that lineage all the way back to Stuyvesant in New Amsterdam. But we got to oh. Illinois, as far as we can tell, in 1844 on about a 600 acre plot of land out of Sugar Grove, Illinois, which is up in northern Illinois next to uh, Aurora, Illinois. And they... Uh, they started there. I mean, these were tough people, Francisco. They they didn't even have electricity, obviously, till 1913. So they did 600 acres, hog farm, chickens, you know, uh, uh, pigs, cows, you know, hay, corn, beans, all without electricity from 1844 to 1913. So uh, I come from good stock. That's well, only on my mother's side. You know, the Polish side is has got its own story. Yeah. Well, let, let's hear that story. So in 1929, my, uh, my grandfather promised my grandmother, if she would come from Poland, marry him, come to America, that the streets were paved with gold. So they got here a couple of months before the stock market crash <laughs> and the Great Depression. And so that's how we started. And, and my, uh, my grandfather worked two eight-hour jobs, uh, 16 hours a day. 
Uh, my grandmother worked, and the famous story is before she delivered my father, she worked all day cleaning Washington National Insurance Company in downtown Evanston, Illinois, walked herself a mile and a half to the hospital and gave birth to my father. Wow. Well, you know, I, I love hearing those stories, Adam, because we, we're, we're a nation um, of people who come from all over the, the world. My, my dad and my grandparents came from Cuba, uh, not as far back as your uh, families have come, but you know, but just in the uh, early 1960s. And to hear the stories of how hard they work, uh, I mean, that work ethic that all of them had, and that we're really the uh, beneficiaries of the sacrifices they made uh, coming across different waters. I mean, my, my, my family, it seems like 90 miles away from Cuba was, was some treacherous water, but coming all the way from the Atlantic uh, as well from, from where your families came in uh, what, Poland and, and New Amsterdam, um, and really just instilling that hard work ethic in, in people like us and trying to take it, take it on to the next level. And then I, I thought it's interesting, your, your family, your, I guess it's your, your, um, your mother's side of the family, I think, who was in Illinois uh, back in the 1840s. I'm thinking there was also probably a, a young man in Illinois back around that time who was getting his start in politics, Abraham Lincoln, right? Um, and so who knows, maybe they crossed paths. Any, any, uh, any insight on that? We, we don't have any insight on that. You know, however, the family does have journals. I haven't been able to review those journals, but I come from a long line of, uh, of the men uh, writing down their thoughts in their logbook. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, he, uh, he did a, a small 60-page uh, to have lived and learned. And I just reviewed that recently over the course of the past two weeks, and I learned some amazing things. Uh, he worked for the for a paper company, which was one of the largest paper companies in the country. He rose to a director of, of that company. He had hurt his hand on the farm. It had gone through a, a uh, some type of a press, and so he couldn't be a farmer. He had to become a businessman. And uh, in Oak Brook, Illinois, was actually founded by the Paul by Paul Butler, who was a part of the Butler Paper Company, who dominated that niche in that industry in the Midwest. Wow, that's incredible. Well, uh, Adam, let's get into a little bit of your story. I know um, you were born and raised, I think, in Hersher, Illinois. It's a town north of Chicago in the Illinois suburbs. And uh, you also co-founded Homepages Directories, which was a, a twenty million dollar publishing company. I think you were there between about 97 and 2007. Um, so tell us a little bit about what brought you to that point and how and why you were part of the founding of Homepages Directories. And, and if you could tell our audience a little bit something about the company too. So Hersher, Illinois is about 60 miles south of Chicago, but it's literally in the middle of nowhere. So for 26 miles from Kankakee, Illinois to Dwight, you have nothing but cornfields, bean fields, alfalfa fields, sunflower fields, hay, hay fields, and then you have Hersher right in the middle of that. So, so there's really nothing around it. It was a great place. It was like Mayberry growing up. The sign that welcomes you to Hersher says, the finest in small town living, the people believe it, they live it, and that's where I developed my work ethic on the farm, walking beans to tasseling uh, corn, uh, baling hay. And I, you know, when I ran for governor in, in 2009 and 10, you know, and it's a corrupt state, and I ran against the corruption in both parties, on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. And I used to say on the stump, when people say, why are you doing this? Why do you want to be governor? You know, four of our last nine governors in Illinois went to jail. Why do you want the job? This is a fiscal nightmare. And I used to say, look, 
Have you ever baled hay? <laughs> That's tough work. This is our obligation. This is our responsibility. We've got to get this one right. Uh, so, Look, uh, starting out in business, that's why I fight so hard on the behalf of the taxpayer, Francisco, because it's always impossible. You know, my brother and I, we started this publishing business when print was king in the yellow pages industry. We worked, wrote down the big phone books in the, into the small neighborhood directories for small towns. Up to, you know, in the beginning, we only published uh, for towns up to 5,000 residents. We gave them their own phone book because we knew that 87% of purchases were within a seven mile radius of your home. So uh. you didn't need a three inch thick directory with 60 towns. You just needed your hometown vendors, your hometown businesses and providers. And that's the book we gave people. They were very, very popular. There's, my brother still publishes those to this day. I, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I cashed out in 2007. It was after 10 years. After 10 years, we were an overnight success of literally working around the clock. Uh, briefly, here's that story. Uh, my brother graduated from Harvard Law and joined me in the publishing business in 97. In the first year, we were upside down. Everything that we had saved, everything was in the business to grow the business. At the end of year three, we were a million dollar sales revenue company and we nearly lost the company because we nearly ran out of money. We survived that lean period uh, in the sixth year. That was the year we finally out earned our employees. My brother had a Harvard Law School degree. You know, I was working around the clock, arm in arm with him and our employees for six straight years out earned us. You know, right up until, so in, in year five, that was the first year we actually uh, had a profitable year and made some money. Up until then, we'd make a little bit. My brother would call me with a capital call. It would go back into the company. And finally, you know, in year six, we were a $5 million business. At the end of year 10, we were a $20 million business. And that's when finally we were an overnight success. Yeah, you know, overnight success, 10 years, right? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because you you came up in that era uh, where the, the internet was starting to be used more. Uh, this is still pre-social media companies. But, you know, we just think of, I mean, I I actually not sure the last time I got a telephone book. I feel like one's delivered still about once a year and it just shows up and you're like, what do I do with this thing? And maybe it's a doorstop or something. You know, well, my brother, I you know, since 2007 to today. So in 07, if you remember back, that was one year before Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Right. That's when I, you know, that's when I was able to cash out of the business. And nobody saw it coming. Multiples in the print, yellow pages industry were an all-time high, never to return. Um but my brother's been able to navigate the platform change to the electronic. And he works with about 50,000 businesses today. Uh, by 2015, they were the largest print uh, community publisher of Yellow Pages directories in the country. So, uh, so he's about the only business uh, in that industry that never went bankrupt. And actually, they're thriving. That's great. Well, when you were uh, coming up with the idea of starting the company, I loved how you really zeroed in on, hey, a lot of these smaller communities don't need stuff from, you know, 50 miles away, you know, and maybe downtown Chicago or whatever it is. They just, 87% of the business is done very, very locally, seven miles from their door. Uh, you zeroed in on that. You found a market to do, but I mean, it still took a while for you to employ that. Well, and then it was shoe leather. And let me tell you, I made 60,000 premises sales calls selling behind our sales force. So we used to put in two reps, 
one half of the town would go to one sales rep, the other half of the town would go to the other sales rep. They'd sell through, then they'd switch sides, they'd sell through again. When they felt they couldn't sell anymore, that's the universe of calls I got. Everybody they couldn't catch up with, everyone that told them no, everyone that told them maybe and to come back later. And then I, I set the, uh, I, every single year, I was the uh, number one uh, sales rep for our company, selling behind our sales force. Out of every 100 decisions, I'd get roughly 43 to place an ad in our directories and 57 told me no, taking the toughest, toughest tranche of small businesses. Yeah. Now, Adam, tell me a little bit about your experience before there. Where, uh, what was your educational path and what kind of, I know you, you mentioned growing up on a farm and doing a lot of that uh, hard labor farm work for many years. What was your path from the farm into this and, and, and everything kind of in between? So I knew I wasn't going to be a farmer. My, my uh, immediate family, uh, my mother was a school teacher. My dad was a school teacher in the Hersher School District. My mother taught for one year, had me, had six more children. I was the oldest of seven. So I always knew I was going to go into business. And furthermore, my father and mother instilled in me a true love of public service. Uh, you know, my family was at or near the federal poverty markers for my entire upbringing. Uh, this was when an Illinois teacher didn't make a lot of money. Uh, it was seven kids at home, one income. Uh, my father decided to run against one of the most powerful Illinois politicians in state history. My dad, my entire family, we ran against George Ryan, the Republican that was then a state representative. And eventually Ryan became Speaker of the House. He became Lieutenant Governor under Thompson for a couple of terms, Secretary of State, finally Governor. And finally, he was a federal prisoner when he got indicted by the feds on corruption. And we knew the Ryan family on their home turf in Kankakee County. And my dad, back in 1976 and 1978, ran the ads in the newspaper, the hear no, speak no, see no evil monkeys, in his ads while Ryan ran the full page, vote for the good government team, vote for George Ryan. We always knew who they were, and they, you know, unfortunately snowed the Illinois voter for decades until the feds caught up with them. So it sounds like uh, in addition to the farm, you had a little uh, political uh, experience in your family with your dad running for governor. Had he ever run for anything in elected office before that? So my dad ran for state representative against Ryan twice okay. in 76 and 78. And that instilled in me the love of true public service. That coupled up with my entrepreneurial business experience with my brother uh, really taught me that when government taxes you, when they take a piece of your hard work, which is your freedom, and when they spend that, to spend that honestly, efficiently, and frugally. That's what I fight for the rest of my life to ensure. And that's why at OpenTheBooks.com, we've pioneered this concept of every dime online in real time. If they tax you, we deserve to see where it goes. We deserve to be able to follow the money. And we, it's our constitutional right, Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution, to hold them accountable for tax and spend decisions. Yeah, exactly. So you ran, so um, 2007, you cashed out of um, homepages directories. Uh, and then in 2010, you ran for governor of Illinois. Um, any, uh, and then right I know- away, Right out of the Bronx, Francisco, you know, I ran for the top job, you know, yeah. it was audacious, right? So your dad never ran for governor, right? Just to be clear, no. he ran for state rep against a man who ended up being governor. 
that, yeah, ended up working his way basically through nearly every constitutional uh, office in Illinois as a Republican. And then, you know, uh, my dad ran as a conservative Democrat uh, back in 76 and 78 versus Ryan and lost both times. Yeah. And then in uh, so 2010, you went right for the governor's seat. Yeah. And we, and we went through that a little bit. But uh, what then led you after that race um, to be involved with starting um, OpenTheBooks.com? Well, I knew from my my run for office that the message resonated on the campaign trail. I mean, I was I think I was 37 years old, 38 years old when I was running for governor and outside of the Polish community. And I don't want to underestimate that because it's pretty significant in Illinois. But outside of the Polish community, nobody votes for a guy named Angievsky because they like his last name. They voted on ideas, and we came within 5.5% of winning that Republican primary, literally coming from the middle of nowhere and only 11 months on the campaign trail versus the best and the brightest in the Illinois Republican Party. Shame on us that we couldn't get it done. It was my first run for office. You learn a lot of things, but let me tell you, we were right on the policy, and we left the policy legacy. I ran on two things. Every dime online in real time, robust, aggressive transparency to open the books from the top of the appropriation down into the subcontracts where the real corruption exists. And the second thing I ran on was forensic auditing, deep evidentiary, follow the money auditing, uh, evidence that holds up in court and can be referred for prosecution. And I have, you know, since those ideas resonated, on the campaign trail. What we did is we first started in Illinois with opening the books and auditing those books. And then we brought that model writ writ large nationwide. Great, so tell me a little bit, uh, when people go to openthebooks.com, how could the average person best utilize this site? And who, who are the kind of average consumers of the site? So first off, I'll just tell you what's on the site. So we've got about 80 cents on every dollar at every level of government, federal, state, and local, captured and displayed at openthebooks.com. So when we launched in 2014 on a nationwide basis, I met the legendary U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, Dr. Tom Coburn. And when Coburn left the Senate a couple of years later, we joined forces. He was our honorary chairman. I'm sad to say that he did pass away here in March because of cancer. Mm -hmm. But it was it was the it was the privilege of a lifetime to fight arm in arm with Dr. Coburn as we took our transparency model across the entire country. So last year, uh, Francisco, our our team of auditors, uh, we filed. Incredibly, we filed 41,500 Freedom of Information Act requests on nearly every single substantial public body in this entire country. For the first time in our nation's history, we compiled a responsive record of virtually every single salary and pension record of every public employee at every level of government across the whole country. Wow. In 2019 and 2018, we've got 23 million salary and pension records. And so people can come to the site and, uh, and just search their local units of government. They can find out who by name and what position title makes how much money last year and for the three previous years. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because for the first time, the books are open. Like, for instance, in Illinois, when we launched in Illinois for the first time, now this was back in, uh, in, in 2011 when we launched in Illinois after my campaign in 2010, when we went live with pay and pensions, 
in the first week, here's what people saw. They saw a school treasurer in Lyons Township, Illinois, who hiked his own pay from 164,000 to 294,000 the next year. And they knew something wasn't right. And they investigated. And pretty soon, the Cook County prosecutor, now in Cook County, that's the county of Chicago, Francisco, they can't find public corruption anywhere. But the citizens raised their voice, an investigation was kicked off, and eventually that school district treasurer within a year pled guilty, and he served uh, eight years in the, in the penitentiary. And so that's the power of transparency. You have to open the books. You have to review what our government leaders are doing. Look, you know, we make the argument, you can't complain about the corruption in Washington, D.C., until you take a look in your own backyard where you have reputation, where you know how, how the decisions get done, where you know the players. And when you do, you will have questions, demand answers, and start your own transparency movement in your own hometown. Yes, for sure. Well, you know, one of the great innovative things about America was the founding of America itself, the Declaration of Independence and holding our leaders accountable. I mean, that's the whole foundation of this country uh, separation of powers, checking power against itself. Our founders also actually came up with the word, uh, the phrase, the press, the press, because we're supposed to be pressing government to be accountable. But we've also have a media nowadays, which for all sorts of reasons, isn't doing that job. I mean, it could, you could argue that they're uh, not as well funded. They're not as well, um, you know, there's not as, as many great journalists. You can, you can uh, argue that they have a particular partisan narrative, you know, whatever it is, they're not doing the job. But how has this been able to help members of the media um, as well? And or has it uh, empowered citizens to basically do the job the media is, may, may not be doing? Well, I think both. I'll give you two examples of the media and then an example with the citizens. But uh, just in May, uh, middle of May, we did a co-investigation with USA Today. And I didn't even know USA Today wrote 1,800 word exposés, but that's what we got printed right in, in the newspaper at USA Today with a great Pulitzer Prize winning healthcare journalist, Jane O'Donnell. And we took a look at the wealthy hospitals in this country that knocked down massive coronavirus aid. These are the wealthy hospitals that are organized as charities, as nonprofits. And we found that the hospitals and their CEOs are actually getting rich while the American people are getting healthcare poor. You know, last year, the American people, we spent on average $20,000 for health insurance premiums, deductibles, and out-of-pocket costs. While we found the CEOs of these major hospitals in a four-year period, made up to $59.1 million of compensation. We found that the 82 largest hospital groups, again, organized as nonprofit public charities, in one year added $40 billion to their net worth. It was a 23.6% one-year return on investment. They're getting richer while the American people are getting healthcare poorer. So that's just one example. Another example is we partnered, uh, we, we do a lot of partnering uh, with, with big media across the country, but we did partner uh, last summer 
with the New York Times to investigate Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, his $30 million war on rats campaign. We thought it was failing. So when Bill de Blasio declares for president on the same day in the New York Times is the headline, the rats are taking over New York City. It was amazing. It was about a thousand word expose. We showed that the rats were uh, populations and and, uh, and citizen calls to 911 were vastly escalating. This made a uh, five minute segment, and it is hilarious, on CBS on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. So look, our stuff cuts through. It cuts through into mainstream media, and these things become cultural moments. Just as an aside, a cultural moment that many people listening to the podcast will remember from last summer is we're the people that did the interactive map in San Francisco of the human waste in the public way. That was the poop on city streets. We uh, had OpenTheBooks.com. We did that inner map, and it was international news. So we're... You guys did the map. Uh, did you? I, I also heard there was an app. Was that were you behind the app, or was the app using your map? Because I heard there was an app that was. I guess some people would compare it to almost like a Snapchat or something, where people. But it was like I don't know what they called it, like the poop chat. I don't know what they called it, uh, but it's literally where people were taking pictures and mapping locations of where there was human feces on the streets in San Francisco. I don't know if they were using your your map, or if that was you guys, if it was just the map. So I think that that Snapcrap app was somebody else. Yeah, um, our, our map, uh, our map uh, was the one that made the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, International News. It trended on national Twitter. Um, it was uh, it was a cultural moment in the country, and it helped reframe the debate on the homeless uh, and helped bring a white hot spotlight to San Francisco and other big cities that are actually having a human health catastrophe with their homeless populations. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I love visiting New York city. Uh, I go there a few times a year for work, but uh, one reason, one more reason not to live there. Uh, I just can't be around rats, Adam. So, uh, <laughs> and there's many rats, I guess, in many, in many ways there. Uh, well, the, uh, so you guys have been very successful at openthebooks.com. And um, I know you, you alluded to some of the coronavirus investigations uh, that you've been able to, you, you know, people can come to your website and, and see some of the things. Tell us a little bit about, you know, we've got, you know, one of the, the, the you know, obviously we have the public health catastrophe of the coronavirus, right? And the, the the pandemic level and all these sorts of things. But we also have an economic catastrophe happening in this country, the biggest economic lockdown probably in human history. And our government's response, of course, was to pass a stimulus bill to try to help people, help a lot of small businesses. I know, like you probably do, I know a whole lot of small business owners who have tapped into it this is the only thing that's helping them survive right now. Some of them are even telling me they may they may still ultimately not survive despite the the past. But this the the good intention behind this bill. This is the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, right? The PPP, uh, trying to help in, you know their employees, but others. Tell us a little bit though. Uh, can some of these good intentions have have they has all this money gone to good, Adam? Or, or so there's some off, other. I think we have to cover the public policy decision made by the government executives and our elected leaders in both parties to try what's never been tried for in all of human history was the decision 
to literally bring to a standstill and shut down the economic engine of an entire country. And I think what we're going to see in the rearview mirror is that set of decisions quite possibly was the worst public policy decision in the, at least in the last 100 years. Uh, it has, it has, you know, we've already thrown, uh, I believe the Cato Institute study, we've already thrown through the Federal Reserve, through Congress on the bailout bills, and it looks like there's more coming with the Republican Democrats doing phase four here and getting together on this thing, at least a trillion. Nancy Pelosi wants another three trillion. They've already done six trillion dollars in coronavirus bailouts. And let me tell you, our mission at openthebooks.com is more important than ever during this moment of crisis. We've been all over the national debt. We wrote six letters to the president in the published in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, uh, uh, asking the president to embrace the transparency revolution and as commander in chief to wage war on waste. The national debt ahead of this virus was exploding on Republican watch. For two years, uh, under Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and President Trump, you know, they didn't get a handle on spending. And our national uh, debt, our national deficits on a year-over-year -year basis were approaching a trillion dollars. And so we, we implored the president to get out in front of this issue. Now with this virus, you know, it's on steroids, you know, six trillion and then, uh, and then more, it looks like it's coming. Uh, we just don't have that kind of money. We need to keep the economy open. We need to take all proper responsible measures to uh, preserve and protect the American people and our vulnerable populations. My father's in a nursing home in a memory care unit. Um, he's one of the only nursing homes in the state of Illinois that hasn't had a case, but we worry about it every day. Um, and those populations need to be secured. The rest of the country needs to take the proper and responsible steps to remain healthy. Uh, but we need to, to keep the engine working uh, or the system will collapse. Yeah, we're now, as we're having this interview, we're, what, about four months in to the uh, beginnings of the lockdowns. And we've seen some states open up, and then we've seen them close up again to some degree. You know, here where I live in Florida, uh, most things are open. I think they've, they they closed bars a couple weeks ago. But we've... Uh, between the you know the media and the government, the scare the the sort of the fear factor out there. There's a, obviously there's even though things have opened up, like let's say restaurants are at fifty percent capacity. Disney World has opened up at like twenty five or thirty percent capacity. You've got to be wearing a mask out there in this hundred degree heat, you know, uh, at Disney World just to, just to go there. But um, you still have a lot of people who work corporate jobs who are not literally leaving their home. They're, they're at home. They're on a Zoom call. You know, uh, they're not actually participating in the economy. Schools are still closed. There's a debate whether schools will reopen. The reopening of schools contribute to economic activity as well. So there's just a lot of conversations going on. But even with all of that, there's still a lot of people who are scared to go out. I was at a so restaurant you're, you're, last Francisco, week. Francisco, you're right. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the impact has been disparate. It hasn't mm -hmm. fallen the same on everybody. And obviously restaurants and hotels, they've got a great argument uh, for, for help. Uh, look, at openthebooks.com, what we did, you mentioned the Paycheck Protection Loan Program. These are the forgivable loans through the quote unquote, small business administration that went out across the country on bailouts. Well, it was quick. It was in the CARES Act. That, that was the $2.2 trillion bill. The Senate was, uh, uh, after they started debate on the bill, 
two final, final versions of a bill uh, were yet to publish. They didn't even know what they were voting on. It was a unanimous vote in the Senate, unanimous vote in the House. You remember Tom Massey tried to get a, uh, everybody to own their vote, and he was literally shouted down and bullied down. Uh, it passed unanimously, but so we, we gave uh, the PPP loans to quote unquote small businesses oversight. We made the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. We mapped the mega loans, those loans between 1 million and 10 million, and we called out the Hollywood elites through their affiliated companies that were taking these massive loans. We called out Kanye West. You know, he's a presidential candidate. He claims he's worth $1.3 billion. He's got a sneaker and clothing company, and they took between two and $5 million worth of PPP loans. We called out Francis Ford Coppola, you know, the, the producer of probably the greatest movie ever made in the history of movie making, The Godfather. And he's a successful winemaker. For two of his uh, wineries, he took uh, at least $6 million for those two companies. Again, he's worth about $400 million, they say online. Uh, He can't make the public purpose argument that he needs taxpayer money. We called out Robert Redford. He's got the Sundance Institute. We've called out the Sundance Institute for years on taking government grants. They can't make the argument they need the money. On their IRS disclosures, they show they've got $55 million of net worth that's basically money in the bank. And they took millions of dollars worth of PPP lending. That's amazing. Well, we really only know about this, Adam, because of the innovative uh, idea of putting together a website and a database like you guys have done at openthebooks.com. So that's really incredible. So whatever level of government people want to research, they can use that. And right now we're seeing unprecedented government spending. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, just in the last couple of years, pre-coronavirus, right? We're having still $1 trillion deficits each year, $1 trillion plus, uh, that we're, that's just adding to our national debt, which is what now? I can't even keep up. It's like $25 trillion. And that doesn't even count the entitlements that are yet to come, the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these entitlement programs. Some people put that somewhere 60 to $100 trillion, which is just You're right. mind-blowing. You can't even like, nobody even knows what a trillion dollars looks like. They can't so it's, so when we say these figures, I think the average American it, it doesn't you know really comprehend. They don't really comprehend what that even means. But now, just I just mentioned that for context because just in the last four months, in addition to the normal government budget that was out there that was still like a trillion dollar deficit for the year, uh, we've added what four to six trillion dollars just for this year, and we've done it while an economy is shut down, not producing, you know? So, I mean, one of the interesting things that we're going to be seeing in the coming months and years, uh, Florida, for example, right? We don't have a state income tax. We're one of like 12 or 15 states with no state income tax. One of the biggest revenue sources for our state government is sales tax. Well, when no one's visiting Florida, when people aren't going out to eat or shopping or things like that, the revenue is going to be really, really down. We canceled our vacation to Florida this spring, of course. Yeah, we're, look, we're sorry to know, hear that. States, you know, uh, this, Gavin Newsom in California, he led the effort with Pelosi in the House. And the Pelosi Heroes Act bill passed the House. This is that phase four coronavirus stimulus. It's being negotiated with Republicans. They're asking for a trillion dollars to bail out the states. 
So here's here's what we've well the oversight that we've done on California, Illinois, New York, Washington D.C., Seattle for crying out loud, and other spots across the country. You know, Los Angeles County lifeguards, Francisco, they make up to on total compensation. $365,000 a year. And that's not including the free sunscreen allowance. We've okay. got- 44. I need to figure out how to, how to get this job. That sounds like a great job. <laughs> Sit on the beach and you know save some lives, but $360,000? It's amazing. We've got 44 LA lifeguards that last year made between 200,000 and 365,000 a year. Now, if there's a ray of hope in this country, and we'll get to the Washington DC salaries in a second, which are outrageous. But at least in D.C., they pay their lifeguards 16 grand a year. In Seattle, they're making 45,000 a year. They've got other issues we can get to in a second on pay perks and pensions. But in L.A. County, they're paying up to 365, 365 grand a year. Wow, that's that's just really incredible. Well, so again, when another. Asking, when they're asking for a bailout, you're bailing out the lifeguards. You're bailing out the uh, the nurses that work for the university healthcare systems that make up to a half million dollars a year. In San Francisco, you're, ma- you're bailing out the members of the Poop Patrol. <laughs> they make up to $184,000 a year. You know, California has a trillion dollars worth of unfunded pension liability in large part because of the strength of the unions in California. So let them solve their own problems. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the other things that's concerning me as well. You know, one, I've seen the sort of fear factor of people not wanting to leave their homes and go out, but also you see a lot of people now who are maybe service workers. We got a lot of those here in Orlando where I live who I think have figured out the unemployment assistance they're getting actually is a better deal than trying to work their job, go back and work their jobs. And in fact, you're starting to even find employers who are having a hard time getting some of these people to come back to their jobs because they're getting the unemployment assistance. And then maybe they're just doing some other little entrepreneurial thing on the side, you know, that's that's not really, uh, you know, being covered by, you know, being uh, sort of watched by the government in some ways, you know, maybe it's maybe it's some little cash business on the side, maybe it's a photography business, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So, um, I mean, that's that's concerning, kind of taking away the um, an economic initiative from people because they realize, hey, the uh, the assistance I'm getting here, and then maybe it's those lifeguards, you know, uh, like like you know, David David Hasselhoff type uh, lifeguards, you know, out on, out on the the beaches of uh, California, realizing, hey, pretty good deal. They've shut down the beaches. They've shut, you know, I'm going to get bailed out here. I can sit I can sit home now and and kind of collect some of this money. So, you know, I mean, it, it is across the country. So like, you know, in New York, uh, look, the New York state legislature, they, they want to bail out. They want your money to bail out their bad fiscal policy. But here's what they did last year. Okay, they were making, they were all making 85 grand a year in the state legislature. So then they hiked their own pay. This year, they're making 110. That's quite a pay hike. Well, next year, they're making 130,000. They're going to be the most highly compensated state legislature in the entire country. And they want you to bail them out. Well, you know, I mean, we found all kinds of malfeasance, of course, in New York. There's 300,000 six-figure public employees at every level of state and local government. And I, you know, in the New York public schools, the school district janitors out earn the principles because of the union contract. You can be a janitor and make up to $200,000 a year. In New York City, the plumbers earn up to 
$285,000 a year. In the New York State Legislature, we uncovered, we uh, showcased a piece of, of corruption I've never even seen before. There's 21 of them that are elected that double dip the system. For their elected position in the General Assembly, they're collecting a pension on that seat and a salary. Here's how it works. They were elected, they qualified, invested in a pension, and they retired from the General Assembly, and then they were reelected. Now they get both a salary and a pension, and 21 of them have worked, worked that loophole, worked, learned how to game that system. Yeah. I've never heard anything like it. Well, uh, again, uh, people can go to openthebooks.com and really see and, and investigate things in your own backyard because, you know, I think that's the great innovative thing you, you guys have put together is that this is now making government, local, state, federal, uh, open and transparent to any citizen, any media source that wants to go in and just look at it. You guys have made it very easy for people to do that. And it's great that, you know, we have the technology available to do that, but it took a great organization like you guys to, to do that. So I, I give you a lot of kudos. And I think our founders would be proud if they had access to this back in, uh, you know, the 1770s. I'm sure they'd hold, uh, you know, the King of England accountable in some way as well. Uh, well there's a lot of kings right now to hold accountable. <laughs> yeah, and, no, uh, you're totally right. In, uh, in Washington, D.C., you probably saw this a couple of weeks ago. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House on a party line vote they passed forward, I think it's a resolution, to start the process of conferring statehood on Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia. Now, you know, it's not going anywhere in this Senate, but who knows in the future where it goes. So we investigated Washington, D.C. And if they became a state and adopted the pay scale from the states, all of them in D.C. would have to take a pay cut. Yeah. So the mayor out earns Every governor of the 50 states, wow. their city council chief out earns every member of Congress except Nancy Pelosi. Their police chief earns uh, every uh, four-star general in the United States military. Their education chief, uh, that man at the superintendent of schools in D.C., out earns Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education by $100,000. Their parks and recreation chief out earns the the uh, secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior, a cabinet-level position that manages one out of every five acres in the entire country. Wow, unbelievable. Well, Adam, one of the other things that uh, we try to look at on this podcast at the Agency of Innovation is uh, also philanthropy and, and how important that is. And, you know, one thing that also concerns me in this time is that a lot of charitable organizations are being hurt right now because, you know, they are really the recipients of, of, of really revenue from successful people in the economy. There are some that get government grants and things like that, but I th that's even hurting to some extent. But I, I think that for the most part, you know, there's a lot of charities now that are having a hard time raising funds during this time and maybe going forward, maybe hurt even further. Um, can you just say a little bit about um, just the philanthropic community, maybe some things you're involved with? I know Open the Books is also a 501c3 nonprofit that people can support through charity, but uh, tell, tell us a little about what's going on in the philanthropic world right now. So, I mean, what we have done is we have taken uh, the nonprofit 501c3s at the federal level, and we've taken a look at the 200 
uh, largest that receive the most federal money, and we're going to issue an oversight report on that, uh, because people are hurting and tens of millions of, you know, there's an 11% unemployment rate, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs, are displaced from good work opportunities, food banks, um, you know, the lines are around the corner right now. Mm-hmm. And so we studied how we feed people in this country. And during that investigation, we found that some of the largest food banks across America are paying extreme salaries to their executives. And I find this particularly troubling. The largest food bank in the country, Feeding America, last year paid up to a million dollars to their CEO. I find that extremely troubling. The largest food bank in New York City paid over a half million dollars to their top executive. You know, and and this goes on across the country. Look, again, five-star generals in the United States military make $278,000 a year. There is no excuse for a food bank to be paying this kind of bread. And a lot of uh, those sorts of charities, like you mentioned, the food banks get a lot of government assistance as well, right? Well, they do. They do get government assistance, uh, not only at the federal level, but the state level and certainly the local level. And they get a lot of assistance from the private sector. Look, we're a very generous people in this country. There is a real need out there. So I would just be very judicious with your, ask a lot of questions, pull the IRS 990s of, of organizations that you want to give to uh, and, uh, and make good, good funding and good charitable donation decisions. Uh, you mentioned your investigations into some of those. Can uh, can citizens go to open the books and look up charitable organizations too, or are you just focused on government? We're uh, we're we're focused on government, but where uh, government monies intersect with the private sector, that's where we take a look. For example, uh, in 2017, we investigated the eight schools of the Ivy League. They're organized as educational public charities. And we found that in a six-year period, those eight Ivy Leaguers, Ivy League schools, uh, were the recipients of $42 billion worth of federal subsidies, special tax breaks, uh, contracts and grants, and other government perks. Uh, this led in 2017, uh, we were cited at the Boston Globe as the impetus for the Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, when they passed the Tax Reform Act. They slapped a new tax on excessive endowments of these schools that if they're not using their endowments for a, for a public purpose and a charitable purpose, they have to pay a tax on that. And so uh, that I guess the purpose of that was to claw back a little bit of the money. Well, great. Well, Adam, this has been really great to have you on. I, one question I always ask uh, pretty much all of the uh, guests on my podcast, and, and you answered this, I think, already to some degree, but uh, I'd love to get a little more clarification. I always ask people what their first job was. And I, it sounds to me like it was on the farm, but maybe not. But uh, tell us a little bit about your first job and also any kind of, um, you know, things you learn from it and maybe some, some things you, uh, that still stick with you today because of it. Well, I was telling my wife about this the other day. I mean, I, I never had a day off. I never had a day where I could sleep in. So I was in the fields. I, I had lawns of the neighbors in Hersher. They were very kind. They let me cut their lawn. They paid me for that. My father bought my first lawnmower, paid for my gas. Uh, all I had to do was, out, was go out there and cut the grass and, and get paid for that. Uh, I, I also ran a paper route. So I was up early. Every single morning, I was up to deliver the papers. So I, and, and on Saturdays, when we didn't deliver the paper, I was up for religious education. So we're, we're Roman Catholic. And on Saturday mornings, that's when I had to, to go to religious ed. So I never had a day to sleep in. That's how you develop your work ethic. Uh, you know, when I was in, in high school, I used to 
privately internalize and complain to myself about that because, you know, my friends were lifeguards and they got to sleep in and things like that. But I think over the course of time, it instills in you something different. It instilled in me a work ethic, instilled in me grit and resilience. And I was able to use that, you know, not only as an entrepreneur, but also today, because we're, we're a public policy, uh, you know, experiment in venture capital. And I'm up at four o'clock in the morning. We don't sleep as a team. We don't eat. We work hard. And it's a target-rich environment to expose these politicians who aren't spending our money honestly and efficiently. Well, uh, Adam, I can definitely tell you that you don't sleep. Uh, you haven't slept in uh, probably your whole life, right? And uh, you're you're just you're very animated about the uh, the issues. And uh, I was actually going to ask you if, but you answered it before I could ask you. If you've been able to, during this coronavirus lockdown, have even just one sleep-in day, but it sounds like you're up early holding the government accountable, putting together some data online for people to see. Um, I know that you write a lot. You are um, actually in, you know, published in a lot of uh, places like the Wall Street Journal, and you have a regular column, I believe, at Forbes. Uh, you've been on Good Morning America, ABC World News Tonight. Uh, Fox News, CNN, um, so you've been, I, NPR. I mean, I know you're everywhere. Um, and so I recently I saw you on Tucker Carlson uh, talking about some things. So um, this is just a real privilege for for us to have you on the Agents of Innovation podcast. And I'm just going to let you kind of uh, give some some final words here and anything you want to deliver to our audience. Well, it's a constitutional mission and it's a privilege of a lifetime because in Article 1, Section 9, it's the Appropriations Clause, Clause 7, that's where we get our charge. And it's oftentimes not talked about, nor has it been given enough attention, and not enough muscle has been put behind this constitutional clause. And here it is, that a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. In Francisco, today, it's now the internet age, and there's a simple interpretation to the constitutional clause. And it's every dime online in real time, open the books. We're committed to that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Adam Angievsky. Uh, hopefully, I pronounced your name right again. You nailed uh, it, uh, again, Francisco. CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. We're just really pleased to have you. And thank you so much for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. It's been great. Thank you. It was one of those nights It was just as cold outside as the look As the look in your eyes I'd do anything to get you far Use the highway, use my daddy's car And drive under the stars Drive into the night Baby, this very car we're driving
walk into the night Into the light.